Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. There are many ways to describe Elisa Sherman, mover and shaker, entrepreneur, visionary, activist, author. Let's start with CyberGirl, the first full-service female-owned web company she founded in 1995 and the first global internet networking organization for women. Newsweek noticed and named Elisa one of the top people who matter most on the Internet. She also made Hispanic business magazines one of the 100 most powerful Hispanic entrepreneurs. After spending more than 25 years in the industry, Elisa embarked on a new venture. She's the CEO of Elementa, a global women's cannabis wellness network. It, quote, provides women with trusted information, supportive community, and reliable resources focused on the health and wellness benefits of cannabis. Aliza has written a dozen books, including her most recent, Cannabis and CBD for Health and Wellness, an essential guide for using nature's medicine to relieve stress, anxiety, chronic pain, inflammation, and more. She's been featured in USA Today, Newsweek, Time, CNN, CNBC, and MSNBC. Lots to talk about, so let's meet and get to know Eliza Sherman. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here, and wow, did I do all of that? <laughs> you know, it never ceases to amaze the women I interview when I do their introductions, which I cull from their bios. You know, when you have a minute, you should sit and read your bio <laughs> and find out all the accomplishments <laughs> you've made. It's been a long time and a lot of reinvention. I think that is the key word. As you went from career to career, I really have changed careers entirely. I guess they call that a pivot these days. First of all, we're on the phone with you because you live in Alaska. <laughs> Why? <laughs> uh, for love. <laughs> I, I told the, the man that I love that I would follow him to the ends of the earth, and he brought me here. He actually brought me to interior Alaska at one point, which was the crossroads of the Alaska Highway, and there was very little there except you know, a school, one store uh, for groceries, a couple of motels and RV parks. It really was uh, kind of at the edge, almost into Canada, which was a just beautiful country. Uh, so that was me running an internet company from the middle of nowhere. So that's how I ended up in Alaska. I mean, when you think about that, <laughs> isn't that hilarious that you're way out in the wilderness almost? Well, I found it to be really a proof of concept, the proof that if you have an internet connection, and by the way, I had to have three separate internet service providers in order to be able to make sure I had my connection because that was my connection to the world. But literally, I could reach the world and people would say to me, what? You're in Alaska? I thought you were everywhere because <laughs> you could be everywhere. And it was also my opportunity to expand my business and to expand my career. And I did a lot of travel as well. So I, being based out of Alaska and being based out of rural Alaska at that time was an amazing experience and proved to me that the Internet is so powerful at connecting. So, Eliza, how long have you been in Alaska? And then when did you make the move to a, quote, metropolitan part of the state? <laughs> yes, I'm in the big city of Anchorage. <laughs> so I, our first trek into Alaska was around 2005. And we were in Anchorage for a couple of years. I had uh, our baby, which is now a 12-year-old daughter. And then we moved to rural Alaska for five years. Then we went to Arizona for three. And back here since 
uh, about 2016, I think. So we've been here back here for a couple of years. And, you know, once you live in Alaska, if it calls to you, it calls you back. And it certainly did call us back. So uh, my husband's career takes him to places with wild lands because he's a wildlife biologist. He's not in technology. And I follow him because I am essentially portable. I'm mobile with a digital marketing firm, with a virtual company now. The cannabis company is entirely virtual. And as an author, I can pretty much be anywhere as long as I have that connection. That's fabulous. That's just fabulous. So talk to us about Cyber Girl. Was that your first really big venture experience or did you work your way to that point? I have to say that Cyber Girl being my first entrepreneurial venture was a pretty big deal. But my career path, I mean, if you think from Cyber Girl to Cannabis has been an interesting one. I mean, I started off as a waitress. And <laughs> as a waitress, <laughs> I just, I, I always have to say that because people say, well, where did you start? How did you get to where you are? And it was stepping stones. So I was waiting tables in a diner and I remember looking out the window going, what else is there? And I signed up to become a temp secretary. Where was this? So this was in Virginia. So in Virginia, and I, I was a temp secretary. I knew how to type, which was an incredible skill back then, <laughs> because you could easily get a job in an office, which paid pretty well. And I began to learn about computers. And as I learned about computers, I was really fascinated. I was afraid at first, and then I was very interested in it. And I became an ATM dispatcher, like literally using a computer to dispatch the ATM repairman. <laughs> and, and so I have to tell you, the next job I took was in the music business. And I ended up with an eight-year career working for first a management, a booking agency, then a management company. And I worked with Metallica, Def Leppard, and Bruce Hornsby. I mean, this is all before I even started Cybergirl. And then I left the music business and I ran a nonprofit organization on domestic abuse awareness. And then I got into the internet, but in between, I was held up at gunpoint and kidnapped what? with Wait. a friend. What? I, you don't know. It's just not in my bio. Has anybody reached out to you to make a biopic? When were yeah, you kidnapped? So, when did this happen? And where did this happen? And what the hell happened? So, yeah. Exactly. I ended up uh, moving to New York City. So part of this, these career moves, I was in New York City for the music business and the nonprofit organization. And I was working late at night with a friend at a diner. On the way back to his apartment, three men approached us, uh, young men. And in fact, one of them was a boy. Uh, they all had guns and they held us up. We didn't have any money on us. They said, well, let's go to the bank. And this is 1 a.m. in Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I, I followed them. So they took us to the nearest bank and at gunpoint had us go into the vestibule and literally try to withdraw money out. And I didn't have a wallet or anything, but my friend said, I have no money in the bank and they didn't believe him. They kept trying to get the money out. And I finally said, look, my wallet's in his apartment and we're locked out. So help us break into his apartment <laughs> and, and you can have all my money. So 
they walked us out and we were able to escape. They took you up on your offer. They took, well, and here's the interesting thing. They didn't realize I'm Hispanic and they spoke to each other in Spanish ah. and they were saying, can we trust her? Do you think we can trust her? And I said to them, of course you can trust me. Ah. <laughs> So they did take us out on the street, and that gave us the opportunity to escape. So we, we were able to escape from there. And after that, my whole life had changed. My perspective on life, the realization, how short life is, yeah. and how anything could change it in a moment. I'm curious, when this horrible incident happened, was that before or after you were involved with ATMs professionally? Oh, after. Okay. okay. <laughs> it was after. It was after. And I, I also remember uh, my friend kept handing them the ATM slip that said zero dollars, zero dollars, zero dollars. And when we went back to the bank after with the police, their video camera was not working. Oh, so, so they had no video footage. We, By the way, we, we actually ended up capturing all of them. My friend was out on the hunt looking for them, saw them on the street, called the police. They pulled one of them over. He turned his friends in. We ended up going to a trial. Wow. And they ended up getting jail time. I mean, this is a huge two-year ordeal that really took over a lot of my life. And coming out of it on the other end, I was pretty fearless. I mean, once you look down the barrel of a nine millimeter gun and you know your life could end at any moment, pretty much starting a business is a piece of cake. So that was a seminal moment. Shortly after that is when Cyber Girl was born? Exactly. What's the genesis of that? So I had learned about the internet when I bought my first computer. And I was dabbling on the internet. It was a hobby. It was there were no pictures. It was all text. And I was fascinated with how you could publish content online and how you could communicate with people through your computer. So that had always been with me as this little side hobby. I was made fun of. I was called a geek. I had my roommates worried about me because I was always on my computer <laughs> and none of them had computers. So that was something I carried with me. And when I decided I wanted to start a business, I looked around and I thought, well, what could I do? Well, I had just taken a class on HTML, which was the building blocks of websites. I had learned about the web. I had learned how to code. And I decided that's my business. I'm going to teach people how to do this. And I'm going to do it for them and have them pay me. Well, not for nothing, Aliza, to have studied and learned code back in the 90s as a female was pretty seminal. You had to be a real anomaly. It was interesting because, first of all, HTML code back then was quite simple. It's much more complicated now. But it was unusual because I was the only woman with my own internet consulting business at the time. Uh -huh. And I was teaching women who had never programmed in their life. And I was teaching them HTML and opening up incredible doors for them in terms of careers. They were able to step into a tech company with a skill that I think a lot of men were surprised they already had. I would always be the only woman in the room for the first year of my business. There were just no other women at the level of what I was doing. And in fact, Back then, I didn't even have a laptop, so I had my boyfriend at the time carry a full computer <laughs> into, and then I would set it up. I would set up the screen. I connect it to, I would do the whole thing. They would turn to him and ask him all the questions. Wow. They would never even 
consider the fact that I was the president of the company. Wow. So Cyber Girl really was me. I started out building a website that was all about my personal interests. It was my personal site. And it was the only site out there that I could find that was a growing site with content specifically geared toward women. And I expanded that into wanting to meet other women with websites as well. And back then, it was a weird thing that men would pose as women online. And so you never knew if they were actually women or not. It was just this thing they did. And also, there was a lot of harassment, really, really severe harassment online. So many women were afraid to go on the Internet because they could easily be harassed if somebody knew they were female. So I invited some women. I thought they were women. I hoped they were women. I invited them to a little cafe in uh, the East Village to talk about the web. And women showed up. Six women actually showed up. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the fact that we were, like you say, anomalies, that we didn't know anybody else who had websites, who knew what the internet was. And we banded together. I wrote about it on my website. And I began to get emails from women around the world saying, can I start one too? Wow. And I was like, start one what? <laughs> and so it, it, it became Web Girls International. It was women helping women learn about the Internet, meeting face-to-face, and then my company would spend thousands of dollars a month hosting their websites, hosting their listservs, which were their email lists for discussion, and promoting them. And that became what Cyber Girl and Web Girls was for the next couple of years. It was an amazing community of women uh, learning about and teaching one another about the Internet to further their careers. Elisa, when Cyber Girl got off the ground, and you just mentioned that you spent thousands of dollars, where did the money come from? Did you have investors? Well, we didn't at first. So at first, I was doing services such as digital marketing services, building people's websites. I mean, I was pounding the pavement. Nobody knew what a website was. I went to the MoMA, you know, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Sure. I went to the Met. I went to places that I loved and that I could identify with. I, I got in touch with the body shop because that was a store that I really loved and I admired and need erotic. And I would say, let me build you a website. And at first they said, a what site? A uh-huh. what? We don't need that. Uh-huh. And then eventually they called me in and said, tell us about this. Well, I ended up not getting them as clients, but I did get Dr. Atkins as a client. I worked with Estee Lauder companies, including Clinique and Origins. They had a a cosmetic company called Jane Cosmetics at the time. I worked with Jane Magazine, Jane Pratt's Magazine, and we built their websites for them. So I had web clients. Were you a one-man band? Well, at first I was just me in my studio apartment. My very, very, very first client was the brand new head of new media at the New York Times. He had made a CD-ROM and he was told that his next directive was to get on the internet, get the New York Times on the internet. He didn't know what that was. So he called me and he would sneak me in after hours to his office and I would show him how to get online, what a web browser was. Mm -hmm. And he would pay me. And in Mm -hmm. fact, my very first check was from the New York Times for, for teaching him that. So after that, though, I did move into office space and we eventually hired our staff. We had a lot of interns as well. I would get emails from women around the world saying, could I work for your company? I'll get to New York City if I can. And I would say, absolutely, you're welcome here. 
we had so many women come through our door and I would train them on everything I knew because I wanted them to kind of go out into the world right. and find how technology could help them and help others. I mean, that was my mission. I honestly, though, I have to tell you, I was a terrible boss. I was very fearful uh, once I was running a business. Uh-huh. I had a business partner and we had a lot of uh, personal issues there. It was a struggle. I think a lot of women partner with people because they think they can't do it on their own and they pick the wrong partners. Huh. And so I, I had some really serious struggles. I was out traveling the world, empowering women, but I was fairly disempowered myself. Isn't that within funny? My own company. Was your partner male or female? Male. I bring it up, though, because I really want women to know that even on the outside, when you see a woman who looks incredibly powerful, incredibly successful, you don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. And you're not alone if you're a woman in a powerful position with things that are happening behind you, either people who are undermining you or partnerships that are really going sour. There is always a way out and there's always a way forward. I, I, I tell my stories. I tell my failures because success is right on the other end of that. And it's just believing in yourself and surrounding yourself with cheerleaders, not with the people who drag you down. So your time with Cyber Girl kind of comes to a close, and then this new venture comes your way. So how did that happen? After Cyber Girl, I started bilingual online marketplace for Latina professionals. It was called Aviva. And by the way, you had asked me about an investment question with Cyber Girl. We did end up getting an investor. I learned a really hard lesson about an investment, and I will tell you in a moment what that was. We did get $350,000 from a media company. Well, when I started Aviva, I already had a track record. We got $150,000 in angel funding right out of the gate from a woman who was formerly of Goldman Sachs and began this company right before the internet bubble burst. Talking about investing and funding, which is a major issue for female-run, female-founded companies. When I had CyberGirl, my business partner at the time told me, don't take too much money because you will lose control of your company. This other investor offered us a million dollars. And he said, don't take it. Take less. So we took 350000 huh. That was the kiss of death wow. because two other companies, iVillage and Women.com, came in about a year later after we did with funding and leapfrogged over us. And basically, we paved the way for them. That was a tough lesson. I bet. When I had Aviva, when we had the angel investor and the market crashed... We were very responsible. We didn't burn through the rest of the money. We returned the money to the angel investor and we worked off the rest of the money. We continued to pay it off until we paid the whole thing in full back. That's how, that's how responsible we were. Mm-hmm. And then, Well, that's how ethical you were. I think that uh, running any business in any industry with ethics, uh, with an ethos of honesty, uh, and building trust, I think that's that's the basis. Mm-hmm. That's the basis to me of business. But let me tell you, after that, after Aviva, and we shut it down, I bought an old RV 
and I left New York City and drove around the country for a year. And that became rvgirl.com. <laughs> that became a website of my travel log of me alone on the road with my two dogs. Whoa. How old were you then? I was just in my early 30s. Uh-huh. And you just said, I'm going to bag this. So you had this, I don't know, was it an epiphany when you were on the road? Well, I, again, I didn't go straight to the cannabis industry from there. <laughs> so on the road, it was it was a self-discovery. I finally realized how resilient I was, how self-sufficient I could be, how creative and how I could tackle anything that came my way uh, just by using my brain and my guts, my instinct. It was an amazing year. It was one of my favorite years. After that, I was on my way back. I, so oh, we hadn't even talked about my books. I, I'd already been writing books. I was already a published author. I'd written several books about the internet for women. I was back heading toward New York City to start my next book tour when 9-11 happened. Ah, okay. So, so that put me on a completely other life course. I ended up moving to Wyoming. That's where I met a man from Montana. We stayed in touch, but eventually we ended up together. He took me to Alaska <laughs> and and we had those Alaska adventures and I and meanwhile I'm doing my digital marketing. That's what I knew. That's what I was able to do portably. I was writing my books. I wrote a few more big books during that time. It wasn't until we were in Arizona that a friend said, "You know, I want to expand my PR business. What industry should I go into?" Well, one of the things I get paid to do by clients is to do future trends. I look at what, what are the trends in industries? What's come down the pike that would affect my client? And one of these was cannabis. So I told my friends, well, why don't you start a PR firm for cannabis companies? This was three years ago. This was 2016. Okay. I thought to myself, why am I giving her the advice and not picking it myself? <laughs> Why don't I start a digital marketing firm and approach cannabis companies? Well, I have to tell you, it was very difficult because nobody had any money. They were putting all their money into licensing, into navigating the, re the new regulations as legalization was occurring. Uh, they just, they didn't have marketing people. They didn't have marketing budgets. So then as I began attending these different events about cannabis, the one thing I saw was missing women opening up about their personal health issues and talking about and learning about how cannabis could help them. I was suffering. I was suffering from of chronic pain. I literally had arthritis, a pain in the neck from all my tech use. Mm. I couldn't sleep. I was also going through menopause, horrible night sweats, terrible insomnia, really the brink of what I would consider to be insanity. It was wow. a very dark, dark time for me. I began to learn that cannabis could help, but I was fearful. I mean, I came from the eighties, just say no generation. Uh -huh. This was a bad thing. I mean, I was okay marketing it for somebody <laughs> else. Yeah. It, yeah. So this was a transformation for me. Then we moved back to Alaska where Cannabis has been decriminalized since 1975. <laughs> Essentially, any individual could grow up to six plants in their home. They could have a caregiver who grew it for them and gave it to them for free. You could 
really carry it with you up to an ounce of it and not get in trouble. I mean, just the things up here in Alaska, a lot of people don't even realize that cannabis has been a pretty accepted thing. So by the time I moved up here, it had just become regulated. And I got my first cannabis client, which was a new retail shop opening up in Anchorage selling pot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh So I did learn about it. I learned how to use it properly. I found that CBD, especially, which was, you know, a chemical compound called a cannabinoid within the cannabis plant is particularly healing and helpful for my system. And that transformed my life. That made me a better person, a healthier person, a better wife, a better mom. And this is what I am telling other women because we are sort of the center of care. We're that hub of care for our children, our partners, our aging parents, for our friends, our community. I mean, we're, we're at the center. You tell one woman about the benefits of cannabis, she's going to immediately affect the lives of a dozen other people before she even begins to advocate for it and tells even more. And so that is Elementa. Explain the name. So Elementa is two words smashed together. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> thought L, so. L, which is she, mm-hmm. her in French. In French, right. Elementa, mind, her mind, Elementa. And it's really, it's about our mind. It's about affecting Uh, our being, who we are, if we are healthy, not just as women, but as human beings, if we are healthy, then our whole outlook on life changes, our whole attitude toward the world changes, our ability to accomplish so much more that we want to accomplish changes because we're healthy. And what I've learned over time is that our human bodies are lacking certain nutrients from the soil that have been taken away uh, that exist in the cannabis plant. And so when back in the days of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, when our forefathers were growing hemp, they were actually nourishing the soil and nourishing human bodies with the cannabinoids and the chemical compounds contained in the cannabis plant, because hemp is cannabis, by the way. So how come that's not more ubiquitous, that information? Because it was banned. If you look throughout history, and this is something in my new book, actually, uh, this is now my 12th book, Cannabis and CBD for Health and Wellness. We go from the history of how it was used in ancient times, uh, by women especially, but by men as well, in order to heal people and also for spiritual and religious rituals. It was a very revered plant through the time of several men in power seeing hemp and cannabis as a threat to their industries. So it was DuPont who was making all kinds of chemicals. The cannabis plant could potentially be a threat. It was Hearst. Uh, hemp was being used to make paper, but he had paper mills. Hmm. And he did not want this to uh, this new plant, Encroach. This plant to yeah. come in. Yeah. Exactly. And so it was a lot of moneyed people. It was a man in government who was basically losing his job. Anslinger uh, was losing his job because prohibition of alcohol was going away. So the story is that he decided after 
saying that cannabis was fine during the alcohol prohibition, changing his tune to say cannabis is now evil. And with all of this money and these powerful men, they were able to put out a huge propaganda campaign and actually change laws to ban the cannabis plant, to vilify wow. the cannabis plant. Uh-huh. So the, by, by the time you and I were born, it was already considered evil. It was considered dangerous. Of it course. was considered a gateway drug. I mean, how do you combat decades of misinformation? You have to do it one person at a time. You, or hopefully, as it mainstreams, you now use the media. What are some of the benefits that maybe the average person may not know about cannabis? And is it just strictly, I understand your company is you know, women-centric, obviously, but their benefits go beyond gender. Absolutely. Cannabis, I call it the super plant, the super food, contains more chemical compounds that are beneficial to not just the human body, but to mammals, reptiles, and birds. So our bodies, if we're talking just about humans, regardless of gender or sex, there's a system within our bodies that we don't really talk about or know about in school right now. It's called the endocannabinoid system. It's an internal system that was really identified by scientists studying cannabis and why cannabis works so well with our human bodies. Well, we know the respiratory system, digestive system, reproductive system, nervous system. We've learned that in school. The endocannabinoid system and the components of it were really identified in the late 80s and early 90s. So it's still fairly new in terms of the actual scientific studies that show this exists and that also demonstrate how chemical compounds in cannabis affect our bodies. So these compounds are called phytocannabinoids. And cannabis is not the only plant that has phytocannabinoids. A plant that we use, a lot of people use, for immune support called echinacea. It has phytocannabinoids. Mm -hmm. A lot of other foods that we consume have phytocannabinoid-like substances that do affect our bodies, like cacao, which is chocolate. I mean, as a woman, you you know that uh, many women like dark chocolate. Well, why do we like it so much? Is it just the taste? And frankly, the more cacao in the chocolate, the more it tastes like almost dust and dirt. It's not exactly an appealing flavor. However, it's nourishing our bodies in a way that just feels good. So our body has receptors in this endocannabinoid system that receives the chemicals from the cannabis plant. So if you only spoke about THC, that is what everyone knows. Oh, that gets you high. It's called a psychotropic reaction. Uh, It's also psychoactive because it affects our brain and it alters our perception. But if you take a very little bit of it, it doesn't affect your brain in that same way. You don't feel like, oh, I just want to sit on the couch and eat some chips. And veg, yeah. You just feel better. So with a very small amount of THC, it still nourishes this endocannabinoid system. And scientists are saying that a lot of our disease is because our endocannabinoid system is depleted so that any person could actually benefit from just a small amount on a daily basis, like a supplement of a cannabis extract, a cannabis uh, product of some kind that nourishes their endocannabinoid system. 
another cannabinoid CBD, which is getting so much play right now. It's really kind of add CBD and suddenly it's a magic potion. It's not. And you have to be careful where that CBD comes from and how it's put into the product and what else is in the product. But CBD is an anti-anxiety. It's an anti-spasmodic. CBD with a little bit of THC is a powerful, powerful medicine that's helping veterans with PTSD, that's helping children with epilepsy because it's a neuroprotective entity and it's protecting the brain and calming the brain. So there are a multitude of benefits and almost I don't know if you remember the commercial the Ginsu knife. It slices, it slices. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the Ginsu knife of plants, but again, the cannabis plant was made by Mother Nature to be this rich, rich tool for all living creatures on Earth. And this plant was stripped from Earth and stripped from our hands. Bringing it back to the people means bringing back better health. And there are scientific studies about this. This, And in fact, I find so many scientific studies on the website for the NIH, the National Institute of right, Health, sure. mm-hmm. our own U.S. government. Yeah, our government who has banned cannabis, they hold patents on cannabis. Why would they patent the plant if they didn't think there was a future use? Right. And yet they also say that there's no scientific proof. And here are all the studies linked to from one of their websites. So I find it fascinating. It's it's going to be, it's kind of the Wild West right now. It's like the early days of the internet. I really feel that. And this is why I identify so well with this time and this place of the cannabis industry. And as a woman in the cannabis industry, it's exactly like the internet industry in the early days. So I know how to navigate it. Yeah, not for nothing, Elisa. You seem to be at the forefront for all of these, you know, seminal times. How do people find Elementa? So Elementa is all over the web in the places that you would think a company would be. We're on the, you know, the we have a website and it's E-L-L-E-M-E-N-T-A.com. And then we're Elementa Woman, singular, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. Uh, we are available via email, info at elementa.com. And we're also in communities across the country and across Canada right now. We're also in Jamaica. We partner with women who want a framework to bring women together and teach them about cannabis for health and wellness purposes. So we're in over 52 cities right now across North America. I wish I could have made the Jamaica launch, (laughs) but we're moving out into the UK soon. And just like Web Girls, we plan to expand worldwide and be completely female-led. That's not to mean that we won't have men running, but for uh, for these very intimate personal meetups, we say uh, female identified. So mm-hmm. we want to be inclusive, mm-hmm. uh, but we do speak about very intimate and personal health issues because many of the women who come to our gatherings, first, they're in pain, they're suffering, they have a condition that they're hoping cannabis can help. We don't offer them the silver bullet cure. We just offer them education so they can explore, they can go to their doctor, ask questions, uh, they can obtain something that might help. And the beautiful thing about cannabis is it's not deadly 
for an adult using it responsibly. It does not stop the part of your brain that stops breathing like opioids do. Opioids suppress breathing. Alcohol, too much of it suppresses breathing. Uh, You do not uh, overdose on cannabis. And it's not the gateway drug. In fact, it's an exit drug for so many people on opiates. Uh, My business partner, Ashley, has overcome an opiate addiction using cannabis, and she's healthier and happier than ever before. Well, wow, woman, what an endorsement. And you are one hell of a broad. (laughs) This has been um, really an eye-opening, fascinating conversation. Aliza Sherman, Alaska, mover and shaker. Whoa, it's just crazy. And I am thrilled to have had this opportunity to have a conversation with you. So I insist that you keep in touch and keep us abreast of what's going on in your life, because I know we haven't heard the end by any stretch of Elisa Sherman. That's for damn sure. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I do have to do a shout out to my business partners, Melissa Pierce in Chicago, Ashley Kingsley in Denver. I couldn't do any of this without them. We've just signed on a new executive, Sherry Mateo out in Marin County. We are a virtual company. We are women. We are powerful. And we are learning as we are teaching. I mean, this is an incredible time. It's exciting to be in the cannabis industry as a woman right now. Uh, And there's so much possibility out there to do good and have a great, successful company. Well, keep us abreast of all of your activities, okay? We'd love to have you back, Aliza. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.